Hey, welcome to Brief History of Power. This is going to be a solo episode, partly because of the nature of the question that I'm handling today. It's a really good question. It's very involved. And uh, it's something that I, for reasons I'll explain, have been thinking about for a long time. So I saved it for myself, <laughs> selfishly. But here's the question that we'll get in. We'll get into answering it. This comes from Lindsay and she says, thank you for continuing this podcast. It is a bright spot of my week to listen to your conversations. Well, thank you. In contemporary right-wing Twitter, I have noticed many nihilist voices with large followings, Bronze Age pervert being the one, particularly in mind. They seem to combine this shock value aesthetic, I don't know what else to call it, with sincerely held philosophical beliefs that pay homage to Nietzsche and Strauss and pre-Socratics, the crass and at times dismissive of Orthodox Christianity. But I can't even tell what is said in earnestness and what's ironic. <laughs> uh, you're not the only one. Last part of the question. To me, these voices and ideologies seem emblematic of the fracturing of conservatism in America. Conservatism is in quotes there. My question is, how did they get here? Who are they reacting against? Are these voices friend or foe? To what extent do we say they're right or justified in their beliefs? Or do we say that at all? and any other comment you might have if the topic interests you. Well, it interests me very much. And so thank you for the question. For this reason that maybe even before I was a Christian, I was at least sympathetic to the right, broadly speaking, in America. And so I've been following this stuff for a long time, longer, in fact, than I've known anything about theology. So there's quite a bit to say on this topic, but I want to start by handling the fact that in the question, the word conservatism is in quotation marks because that's very much right. <laughs> so let's talk about first the history of that term and then the movement to which the term was eventually around the 1950s into the 1960s attached. And then we can answer some of the stuff about a BAP, whom I will call Costin uh, Alamario because that's his real name. And because I don't want to say the full name on air over and over again. So we'll see how we do with that. And, and we can answer some of the other things about where his movement has come from philosophically, but also kind of where it's going or where it could go, because there are parallels to these things in other places and times. So it's not completely unknown that a a vitalist movement devoted to certain forms of physical and mental just sheer strength would pop up, especially as a polity or several polities in this case, because there are definitely BAP followers, both in America, but also in Europe, Australia, other, other Western nations, that these kinds of things pop up when that polity is in decay. So we'll talk about that and, and put that in some kind of historical context because that, that'll help us respond to some of this. Let's talk about conservatism first. There was a time, roughly everything before World War II, when the term was not really used to describe anyone's position in American politics. Not, not really. And there are kind of silly reasons for that, like the term conservative was attached to the Tories in the context of British politics. And because to be a Tory was to be anti-American, if you were an American during the revolution, we tended not to pull that term into our own political discourse. We had other words and our political debates have always been or were up to the Second World War, certainly more about our own particular history in the case of which conservative wasn't terribly useful. An exception to that is the idea during the run-up to the Civil War that people who just want to keep the status quo, who are going to collect into what's called the Constitutional Union Party in 1860, and that's going to do somewhat well in the South and kind of nowhere else, all that that meant that they were conservative was that they wanted to keep the constitutional arrangements that we had and not change anything. So what do we do about when people try to take their slaves west? I don't know. Let's stick with the Missouri Compromise from 30 plus years before. What do we do about runaway slaves in the north? Well, we capture them and bring them back to the south. 
just hold on to things as they are. That's what a conservative was. So again, partly because that whole position is just completely irrelevant after the Civil War, we don't have tons of people calling themselves conservative. What changes is that we get a movement after the Second World War that is self-consciously working in its own mind to conserve certain things. And some of these names are going to be familiar to some of the listeners. And if you want the complete rundown on all of this, you just pick up George Nash's relatively famous book, The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America. I, I think it says since 1945. And what he will do is lay out some of these names and their ideas. But basically what you get after the Second World War, and I'll talk about two figures for the sake of time, but I think they're both very, they're very representative of certain things in themselves. One of those is Russell Kirk. And a lot of people are very attached to Russell Kirk, particularly Roman Catholics. He was a Roman Catholic convert himself. But what Russell Kirk is going to try to do is try to discover a set of overarching Tory-like principles, things that are being conserved over time, goods that are being sought or should be sought by every generation within the American political tradition. And a lot of that he's going to source out of the British thinker, Edmund Burke, particularly in Burke's book, Reflections on the Revolution in France. If you read Reflections on the Revolution in France, you have to remember a couple of things. Number one... <laughs> Burke is not conserving America's political tradition, written down or not written down, or America's historical setting, which is westward expansion, conflict with Indians, conflict with, the, with Mexico, lots of things. Okay. He's talking about holding on to something that has evolved very slowly since the Middle Ages. Kirk kind of pulls that as a set of principles and says, we can apply this to our own our own country. So he'll even do this with, uh, I, I, I think, interestingly, but, but fundamentally wrongly, with a figure, John Randolph of Roanoke. Very strange guy, if you want to look him up. <laughs> very interesting guy. Very weird. But John Randolph of Roanoke was a political figure in the early Republic who thought that the Jeffersonians what were called the Democratic Republicans had just basically betrayed the principles on which we had fought the revolution and then uh, ratified the constitution. Okay. So there's always this attachment to principle. The thing that I sort of distrust about it is that that becomes wildly ahistorical really quickly. And the problem is, and this is, uh, you know, Kirk was not a practicing politician at any level that I'm aware of, like not even on the the town council or something. The problem there is that that's really flattering and interesting to academics because academics, by definition, generally speaking, are divorced from political life. And by political, I mean, I mean, public and public decision making, right? That's partly usually why they seek that way of life because they're sort of retired, right? From lots of things about everyday life in order to think. Here's the difficulty. That's not how politics work. That's not how public life works. You can't just retreat. Okay. And, but if you're retreating, but you're also making political prescriptions, which Nietzsche and Strauss are also going to do, and we'll talk about that. If you're retreating, but you're making prescriptions, then there's always the difficulty that you're just really putting forth your, you know, I think this would be a good idea or, it's always been characteristic of Americans that they've been, you know, whatever, a, you know, a, attached to tradition, local traditions. And there's a whole subculture and micro industry, if you are interested. And it, it sounds like from the question, you actually know a fair amount about the history of conservatism. You can look into this, but things like Front Porch Republic, among others, are going to put forth this always like quasi-real version, principled, here are the principles we're following, quasi-real version of life, and then tell you that that's what you need to do. I, I can be just as sentimental about rural American life as anybody else. The problem is most people live in or near a major city. 
The problem is we have military bases throughout the world. You have to talk about those things. You can't ignore them. And there's something about Kirk and and, and this sort of principled Toryism that it always seemed to me somewhat unreal, somewhat unreal. I mean, even just the fact, and I'm, this is not this is not even to evaluate him theologically, but it's like you're a Roman Catholic outside of Louisiana. Historically, you don't matter in America. That's that's not traditional. You might think it's right. That's fine, but it's not traditional. And that's some of the critique that I've that I've offered in in various ways before of basically everything being trad is if it's going to be anything more than superficial or anything more than your own best guess or anything more than I think this is cool, then it needs to have some kind of contact with everyday life. And if you're going to tell me that you're a traditional American conservative, but you're a Roman Catholic, which historically in American politics, that meant you had too much of an attachment to a foreign power. That was always the question when Catholics in the 20th century started to run for president. Are you actually going to follow the Pope if he tells you to do something? You know, I I just, I, I have trouble believing it. Okay. The other figure, and in, in his own way, he's a lot more important than Russell Kirk, but I have not just disagreements, but disdain for him, is William F. Buckley most famously, in addition to being a an intelligence agent, William F. Buckley was the longtime editor of National Review. Buckley is the guy who more than anybody defines what conservative means throughout most of the 20th century in America. And what that will result in, and you can kind of watch this in the the changes in National Review over time, none of which, if you were following who these people are or anything, would be surprising to you, is that because it becomes, rather than a set of concrete discussions, it becomes about whatever the issue of the day is, it becomes instead a set of principles, and you are trying to conserve, right? So Buckley's famous description from an early editorial in National Review is that the conservative is the one who is standing athwart history athwart being a kind of a typical Buckleyan word to use, athwart history, yelling stop. You got to think about that picture. What is a conservative? He's somebody who's fine with everything up to today and no farther. And that is a dynamic you see not just in conservative people or conservative churches or conservative whatever, but it's something you can observe in National Review, it's something you can observe in the Republican Party, right? So the 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 GOP just ejected George Santos from the House. How did we get to the point where we where we have a a flamboyantly homosexual GOP representative in the House? How did we get there, right? Because the 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 idea here or the tick, and what's interesting about this is that at various times. Buckley would sort of, in a in a very high-handed fashion, determine that someone was now unacceptable in conservatism, usually because of a lack of interest in American intervention abroad. That's probably the, the biggest reason. Also, because he was often something like a Southerner with different views on race relations than a Buckley is from New England. He's not exactly a Yankee in the sense of uh, Puritan stock. He's Roman. Again, he's Roman Catholic. But you know, the, if you grow up in Connecticut in enormous privilege, as he did, you're going to have different views on race relations than somebody who grows up in rural Alabama or rural Mississippi, like a Sam Francis type of person. So Buckley sort of appointed himself as the Pope of conservatism, and then he would excommunicate people. What he would also do, however, is this principle of standing athwart history yelling stop doesn't mean that when National Review starts in the early 1960s, you're going to stop there. So the National Review is against, for instance, the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Of course, you don't have to remember that or worry about that now because National Review has moved with the times. So you can get, you can get, you know, fairly gay-friendly writing in National Review at this point. And if you wanted something that res- that resembled National Review of, say, the 1980s or 1990s, now you'd have to go to something like the American Mind or anything else produced by the Claremont Institute, ironically, as we'll explain. But the principle of I go up to some point and then I say, okay, I don't want to go past that. You can see how flexible that is and therefore how... <laughs> 
politically useful that is really only to your enemies, right? If your enemies can convince you that you are dealing with a situation that is, you know, you're fundamentally a bad person if you don't accept uh, transsexuals, okay? That it's, it's, you know, that's, that's so like 2005 for you to not accept transsexuals. Well, now what you're going to do is you're going to move to a position where you say, you know, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm fine with transsexuals living their lives. I just don't want them to adopt children. Well, now we have conservative commentators like Dave Rubin, who are themselves homosexuals and they're adopting children, something that Democrats weren't even particularly in favor of in the 1990s. So what happens here is that conservatism has become certainly publicly, and this is a lot of people's dissatisfaction with the Republican Party, is because they're always moving and flexing according to the dictates of the left, right? So a conservative just becomes somebody who is basically not really able for various reasons to be a leftist, but he can be useful to the left or he can play his own part in the in the political dynamic because he represents those people who are not completely comfortable with what's going on right now, but nonetheless, you know, he's, he's not a bad person or he's not crazy. Like, you know, Joe Biden back in the 1970s speaking against, you know, uh, against forced busing of, of school kids to, to further integrate schools. Right. So the conservatism, I think fractured rightly one of the major catalysts is of course the 2016 trump campaign but it was coming a long time before then because it really only had any sort of coherence or integrity where things were not moving so fast and debates were not did did not have such high stakes okay so when i first started paying attention to these things more than 20 years ago the stakes were completely different you know it was um there was a lot of debate about the estate tax about the federal estate tax right the the so-called the so-called death tax and if you go back and you look at debates about intervention in afghanistan or intervention in iraq you're still dealing with societal consensus on things like gay marriage you're still dealing with things societal consensus on we're going to try to be colorblind, right? That's definitive. I think a lot of people who listen to the show are sort of confused sometimes because they're like, well, I, I was told I was supposed to be colorblind and and now I'm not supposed to be colorblind. And what am I supposed to do? Well, that was all, that was all still going. That was a going thing back in 2004, right? Conservatism can handle relatively slow moving things. You could even, if you wanted to, our society is, I think, old enough to do this. You could say, well, my conservatism is that I am trying to hold on to good things that have always been here. So I'm trying to hold on to the the land that my family gave me or whatever it is that you're trying to hold on to. That's fine. If things are going to change quickly, though, it's really hard to, <laughs> to use this principle of, you know, you want to stand athority history yelling stop because history doesn't care. <laughs> right? It doesn't matter that you wish things were slower or people were nicer or that life weren't the way that it is where you are right now. I mean, that it just doesn't matter. So conservatism was going to fracture anyway what, what we'll now talk about as Alamariu, his, his following, as well as assorted other Nietzscheans and Straussians they're just they're just a function or they're a reflection of the fact that people are i think rightly dissatisfied with conservatism and this is the reason that i wouldn't personally call myself conservative unless it somehow were going to communicate something helpful to the other person because of what he thinks about the word conservative but i mean what i mean what what exactly am i trying to conserve about america 2023 some things yeah, so I'm I'm conservative on the second amendment, but I don't want to pursue it in this kind of like dorky principled way that people often try to do when they think of themselves as conservatives or traditionalists, right? I I want 
I, I, I want, you know, magazine restrictions to be lifted in the state of Colorado. That's not conservative. I guess it's, I'm trying to conserve a larger principle that's reflected in the, in the federal constitution, but I'm not trying to conserve something about right now, today, 2023. No, I'm trying to do something that I think is right. And it's the, it's the discernment of what is right that I think actually matters, not the label of conservative or certainly the label of Republican. Okay. You want to discern what is actually right and then act according to it. What has happened with BAP, Alamario, as well as others, is that they are trying to find out what is right and they're trying to express it in a certain way. Let me do some of their antecedents, talk a little bit about Nietzsche and Strauss. I'm going to save the pre-Socratics for later. I'll explain who they are. But I want to talk about some of their antecedents before I talk about Alamario himself, as well as all the guys that follow him on Twitter. <laughs> right. When we're talking about Nietzsche, Nietzsche is sometimes called Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, sometimes called a nihilist. He's a nihilist with regard to traditional Christian morality, which he calls a slave morality. So that dismissiveness about Christianity that you identified in the question is definitely there in Nietzsche. Nietzsche, the son of a Lutheran pastor, right? He's not a nihilist in the sense that in his own place and time in Europe at the at you know, during his life, there were legitimate people called nihilists and calling themselves nihilists, particularly in Russia, who would authorize their own, usually things like assassinations of czarist political figures, saying that their superior moral right could authorize any deed. This is the central question of Dostoevsky's novel, Crime and Punishment, right? Nietzsche's not a nihilist in that way. He has kind of a twofold set of ideas. And obviously, for a man who's very aphoristic, I'm, I'm doing a lot of reduction right now, but I'm doing it just for the sake of this is a podcast. Because there's a time after his first youthful productivity where Nietzsche lapses into a kind of silence. And during that time, and this is before he's just debilitated, right? and then under his family's care in, in his death. But there's a time in which Nietzsche is you know, walking miles and miles and miles every day. And that's the first thing he does. He doesn't like to read or to write in the morning, which I just find nuts. But he's walking every morning. And what he's trying to do is he's going to try, he, he, he realizes that if you're a philosopher, you, you need to put everything together at some point or another. It's fine to have written this brilliant thing and that brilliant thing and this other brilliant thing. And it's fine for you to have major attack on Christianity and said that it was the downfall of Europe and stuff like that. Okay, great. You need to bring it all together or it's going to get forgotten, right? Is that if you have a book, you have one book, you have two books, you have five. If you don't put it all together, it's almost certainly not going to survive after you die. And he knows that, right? So what he's thinking of doing originally is that he's going to put a whole book together about the notion of the will to power, that the fundamental dynamic of life, including human life, not, not limited to human life, and that's, that's going to be important, especially for Alamario's ideas, that the fundamental thing about life is that it, it wills itself to attain greater strength, to flourish, to dominate, to whatever, right? And you can probably see here some of the influence. It, this is not only Darwin, there's also homegrown German thinking in this way, particularly Ernst Haeckel, that, that is thinking this way about biology, about the sciences, right? And then Nietzsche is taking that as well as insights that he's drawing from the Greeks, particularly those who come before Socrates, pre-Socratics, that says, okay, I'm, I'm looking for an alternative to the morality that Christianity has provided to the West, and I'm going to find it by finding a, a will to, to power, power here being not you know, political power necessarily, but, but strength, okay? A, a, a flourishing that in certain forms of life, particularly the human man, are going to have to do with being physically strong, physically powerful, 
and therefore then politically dominant, that's going to be the source of the Bronze Age part of Bap's name or the Bronze Age part of his first book, his first published book, right? Is that the Bronze Age is a time, and particularly the Bronze Age collapse around 1200 BC. But even before that, when you start to get the invasions of Greece, by tribes from the north that will then become what we think of as classical Greeks. So this is pre-pre-Socratic, is that that is a time of flourishing and excellence, okay? So Nietzsche has many of those same ideas and is going to try to synthesize them under the will to power. He realizes at some point, hiking some mountain in Switzerland, that that's not really going to be possible, that that's not really feasible to try to pull everything into a single idea. Okay, so if there's fracturing in American conservatism, there's also fracturing in this set of ideas to begin with because it doesn't have the capacity to put things together to synthesize that obviously Christian theology provides. But it has several strong impulses and it certainly has a strong appeal to people who are looking for strength, Okay, who want strength, who think it's who think it's good, right? And on its face, I think that's fine, right? You want to be physically strong. You want to be, you, you want to be your best, right? That's great. That's great. The problem is that's all there is for Nietzsche. And he realizes the poverty of that idea as an idea by itself, as some kind of general principle of biological existence. And so if you want to see what came after that, you have to look at what are called his later notebooks, where he returns to this style that you find in, in other things, probably best composed in Thus Big Zarathustra, but it's, it's aphoristic. It's, here's an idea, here's a different idea, here's a different idea. It's kind of like Twitter that way, <laughs> okay? But the issue here is that you get aphoristic talk when somebody can't put his ideas together for any number of reasons. And in Nietzsche's case, it's obviously not because he's stupid. It's because he knows that there's no particular logical integrity to what he's doing at that point. Okay. And that is going to be reflected also online. Now, the issue here is that online, nobody's particularly evaluating this on an intellectual level on a logical level okay the aesthetic that you mentioned in the question is really what matters that's a problem for trads that's also a problem for the followers of bap is that it's an aesthetic it's an aesthetic about how you look and it's an aesthetic about how you behave and it's an aesthetic aesthetics i look at kind of like public political coverage it's not fake, but it's also not exactly the truth. It's theater. So there's a theater here where you could look a certain way, or you could talk a certain way, and you can talk in a way that has various misspellings, and I can't tell if you're serious, and I can't tell if you're just being weird, right? Which is a lot of BAP's output, as well as his disciples is really what they are. But the significance to me in terms of Nietzsche is that it doesn't come by way of coherent discussion. And Bronze Age Mindset, the first published book, also doesn't come by way of coherent discussion. There is a second book now published under his real name that is his doctoral dissertation from Yale, if I remember correctly. And that ties into, among, among his examiners, is Harvey Mansfield. That ties into the fact that all of this doesn't come to America, and um, Alamariu is is not an American by birth. He's Romanian, and I don't think he lives in America, but he grew up here to some extent. His family came, and he, I, I don't know where he went to undergrad, but he got a doctorate in, I think, philosophy at Yale. And Harvey Mansfield was one of his readers. And Harvey Mansfield is part of one of the two schools of the disciples of Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss is a, a Jewish emigre from, I think, Germany specifically. I don't think it's Hungary or Austria. 
from Germany. He comes to America. I'm just guessing off the top of my head. I don't know this. Probably 1930s is when most come. Strauss is is representative, therefore, of a school of thought that academically really, and I've said this before in some of the other episodes about German history, they're really unsurpassed in their freedom of thought and inquiry. And so Strauss doesn't look at Nietzsche and think, ooh, you know, the Nazis like some of his ideas. I guess that's bad. Strauss is interested in Nietzsche. Strauss is interested in the pre-Socratics. Strauss also has a theory about writing that is much more picked up by what are called the East Coast Straussians, obvious reasons, than by the West Coast Straussians, who are more interested under the influence of a guy named Harry Jaffa in constitutional principles of America and public discussion of how the American polis functions and stuff like that. And that those guys are going to then proceed, the West Coast Straussians, they, they partly because they're coherent, okay, whereas East Coast Straussians are, are not so much, partly because they're coherent. The West Coast Straussians are, matter a lot more in the history of American thinking, and they still matter more because they put together coherent things like the American Mind website or the Claremont Review of Books. So kudos to them, but for the purposes of understanding Alamariu, it doesn't matter. Alamariu has all the <laughs> habits of obf- obfuscation, being obscure, being obscure enough, I can't even say the word the right way, that East Coast Straussians do. And that's not an accident. Strauss has this idea that a lot of writing, especially by brilliant men throughout history, including Plato, has been defined by the need to be esoteric. That is, to say something outwardly, exoterically, outwardly, that is understood by the masses. But the truth is grasped only by one's disciples who who understand the inward or esoteric inside meaning of what you're saying. That leads to all kinds of things, but one thing that it leads to that you see replicated in BAP's following on Twitter is that people are extremely devoted to him as a person, okay? And as a sort of like a, almost like a mood, right? And uh, he also runs his own account under his own name that is like, seems to mostly be about food, okay? I looked this up last night in my, using my, my Lurker account, which is my own name. You can try to follow me, but I never tweet anything. You need an account now to, to look at Twitter. So I looked at Costa Alamario's account and it's like food reviews. Okay. So there's a certain, you know, people on TikTok would call this, you know, self-branding. So the self-branding is what makes possible the idea that people are going to be extremely devoted to you as a teacher. There's at least two different reasons for that. One, and this is to answer your question, to what extent do we say they're right or justified in their beliefs? And there's a lot of things we could talk about. We could talk about gender relations and the idea of the longhouse. That is that men are generally trapped in women's ways of doing things and thinking and operating, and both men and women hate that. We could talk about the need for personal strength, and I mentioned that earlier. There are lots of things, and you can read his books if you want to. I haven't read the second one. But to, an- to begin to answer that question, to what extent do we say they're right, is that you're dealing with something that is ultimately not really about an idea or a way of life that would be actually available to a large number of people. Okay. But it does have very direct contact with the lives of young men who feel weak or who feel feminized or whatever. And then, you know, BAP is telling them, do this, that, and the other. And then you got all kinds of hangers on, particularly on Twitter, who are going to, you know, sell them supplements and give them health advice and all kinds of stuff, right? But the point is, because it has actual contact with an actual problem, as opposed to say, you know, where conservatism means, you know, low taxes or something, 
because it has contact with an actual problem, people are listening. That's why. That's why people care. So whether all of this is completely astroturfed, which some people suggest about Alamario, or it's not, the things that the reason that he has such a following is because he's talking about things that are actually occurring to some degree. Okay. The other the other reason that he's going to have such a following is because he he has created such a such an identifiable personal brand. Okay. And I've expressed before on the show my issues with that idea. Basically, it's that when you have a personal brand and all of us have verbal habits, which you hear on this podcast, even with me, whatever other things you can think of that go into somebody's quote brand, what you're dealing with in that case is something that you can either choose to make a matter of whether people are listening to you or you can choose not to. Okay. So Alamaru does a podcast. He doesn't really do, he doesn't do video as far as I know even now that he's using his own name in, in many ways. So there's some branding that has been avoided there, but the tone, the subjects, lots of things are very much part of a brand. Leo Strauss was himself like that in his own academic way. And what that does is that it attaches people to yourself. I don't really think that that's unnatural. I just don't actually think it's good. Usually, long-term, unless you're going to try to do something in a public way. And I mean, like, you are going to enter public life. Erla Mario is not going to do that. Not in the United States. I, I don't think he lives here. I don't think he feels responsible for it. Fine. I mean, he probably has like an EU passport or something. Doesn't matter to him, right? The difficulty there is, and the, and the reason, the, the, the place where I kind of stop agreeing generally, and I guess we could you could pick up individual beliefs or I could buy selective breeding and the birth of philosophy. That's a dissertation about the birth of eugenics and the concept of nature in ancient Greece. The place that I stop agreeing is generally where solutions are trying to be provided. And I stop agreeing for this reason that I don't actually trust somebody who's trying to tell me about what to do in public life, who's trying to talk about the Bronze Age has not himself been in combat. So there's a certain brutality there that he's suggesting that he has never been responsible for, but who is not actually engaged in these things. So if you want to just give you an example, you want to tell me what's wrong with my family. Great. Are you a member of my family? Or do you have any stake in my family actually doing better in the ways that you're suggesting? You want to tell me what's wrong with LCMS? <laughs> Everybody wants to tell me that, okay, specifically. Great. Are you personally engaged in any way? It doesn't mean that you're wrong. It means that if you're going to accrue influence in a very internet kind of way, way of putting it, you also have to accrue responsibility. You shouldn't have power without responsibility. Power is fine. Strength is great. Responsibility needs to be yoked to them. Nietzsche would call that slave morality. I think Nietzsche fundamentally misunderstood how strong Christ is. I think he did. I think he misunderstood the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and that the proof of strength is in resurrection, not necessarily in complete dominance over one's enemies at every point. I think you misunderstood that. Okay. But let's begin to answer some of the these other questions. I, I said, you know, here's where we agree. Are these voices friend or foe? And we'll kind of wrap up over the next 20 minutes by talking about providing kind of an extensive evaluation. Okay. The reason that this is popular is, is both both among young men for the reasons I stated. But also, I think it's intriguing to people because it's reflective of, because it is an ideology for a time of collapse. That's right there in the title, Bronze Age. It's a time of collapse. Things are falling apart. We all see that in various ways. We could talk about the industries we work in. We could talk about the families that 
you know, most don't go to church and we're the only ones left in our family to go to church or whatever you want to talk about. When things are falling apart, an idea that all will be swept before by some kind of strong agent as the Bronze Age collapse brought completely different groups to power in the Mediterranean, or you could say the classical world. People are going to be interested in that. People think it's cool. <laughs> and not just in a superficial sense of the word cool. They like the idea that things could change and that the change would bring beauty or strength to power instead of ugliness and gerontocracy, government by the elderly, such as we have in essentially every Western nation at this point. Okay. So, of course, people are going to be interested. I, I think BAP is pretty much like a master of personal marketing in ways I don't want to be, but, you know, kudos to him. But the way the the solution he has tried to bring to a world that is obviously winding down small w world right in the way that we would talk about the pre-world war one world of europe that has monarchs at the head of most countries small w world this world of the since william f buckley political consensus and american hegemony in the world it's obviously coming to an end, okay? Things are changing too quickly. What is there left to conserve? So if you're going to propose a solution, then that's great, right? But what is it and, and what is it attached to? In Bap's case, that solution is attached to a, a, a hostility to Christianity that is born out of his philosophical forebears, including Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, both of whom were much more interested in Eastern religions than in Christianity. But people are going to listen regardless, because what he's saying in a ironic, but sometimes entertaining way, is actually addressing issues that are right there in front of you. And if we could say that about our pulpits on any given Sunday, that would really be something. We can't. So I, when, when you get competition, you, you shouldn't say to yourself, well, he's not being nice or something like that. You should say, why am I not talking about things that are actually occurring in people's lives? Right. So what are they reacting against is part of the, the question in the, in the third paragraph of the, the whole email. What are they reacting against? They're reacting partly against. <laughs> interscholastic debates about the meaning of the legacy of Nietzsche, who is used in a completely different way by leftists than by Straussians. And they're reacting in their own way to debates among the students of Leo Strauss. But what they're actually reacting against that anyone actually cares about is the collapse of any sense of vitality, purpose, or beauty to life in the developed world. Okay. It's ugly. We're all fat. It's bad, right? So if you're going to propose some kind of solution to that, or you're going to do something about that, people are going to listen to you. To that extent, are they friend or foe? In this case, and uh, this is where I'm fairly pragmatic about the notion of things on the right, they're quite often friend in the sense we're not, until we get to debating like whether, you know, <laughs> Christianity is going to be the established religion of the state of Wyoming or something. Until we get to that point, it generally they're going to agree with us. So I, I don't, I, I think often their friend, their foe, more often, not so much in a political sense, like a, a public sense, a collective sense, as in an individual sense, in that it encourages, especially in people, most of whom have not been raised in any religion at this point in the West who already despise Christianity. That's making it worse. So in a political sense, it could be helpful. In a theological sense, in an individual sense, it's not at all. And that's that's the way it goes, right? Politics and religion, they're related, but they're not the same thing. In politics, it might be somewhat helpful. In religion, it's pretty much never very helpful unless the guy is able to synthesize what he's hearing about, oh, I should be stronger, right? Great. 
with Orthodox Christianity. If he can't synthesize that, or if he's never heard anything about Orthodox Christianity, then it's very much foe. And I want to provide an example of this before we talk about the two ages. And the example of it is that BAP is not actually unique, and, and I think he would tell you that if you look at his references, for example. And one of his major references is a Japanese writer named Yukio Mishima, a very beautiful writer, very interesting person, but being a, a modern Japanese man, he is obviously pagan in a way that Costa Alamario can't be and probably wouldn't be. I don't think he's you know offering sacrifices to Odin or something. Japan is a fascinating country for all kinds of reasons, one of which is it's completely modern, and it is still in actual everyday practice, particularly with the new year coming up. There will be visits to Shinto temples. It's a pagan country. I mean, it's actually pagan, not pagan in a sort of pejorative, you don't go to church sense. It's actually pagan. And Mishima, over time, became more and more what you might say right-wing. To say conservative is vaguely accurate, but but not really. He's a little more radical than that in his actions and his thinking. You can go look at the way that he died. What happens, and you can see it reflected particularly in his quadrology, basically, right? Four books together that he writes toward the end of his life. It's supposed to basically be a, a history in novel form of Japan from its time of greatest flourishing and hopefulness when they won the Russo-Japanese War uh, in 1905 down to the destruction in and around World War II, right? And what you're going to find in there is that the hope that the protagonist has in any given book is a hope in reincarnation, an idea common to pagan cultures, reincarnation, an idea that as our culture has become more you know, not using the word pejoratively, pagan, reincarnation has become more and more and more common. I mean, just casual reference to past lives, for example, right? Even if the person doesn't particularly believe in it, he's working off the idea of reincarnation. The books hold together, not just through the history, but also through the fact that the same spirit is reincarnated in each book who is shining, but unable to keep himself alive if I remember correctly, from the very first book, he commits suicide. But he's reincarnated. So there's always hope, right? There's always hope. Because when you have this idea that life is composed of sheer vitality, the problem is that that goes away. This is why Buddhism comes up in a society, India, that believes in reincarnation fervently, right? Is that it always goes away. But maybe if you could recognize that person in a new time, then you could see these things come to pass once more. And if you look at the way that BAP talks about the Bronze Age mindset, right, in the book of that title, you're, what he's basically looking for is a reincarnation, a, a, a relighting of a flame that was burning at one time in the West. And this is a particularly non-Christian flame, <laughs> okay? And that's why the guys who come before Socrates are so important, because they speak in the same aphoristic way. And in the case of some, they're going to reduce all thinking to the idea that all life is composed of flame. But they're also the, the men of the heroic time of the Greeks, right? Because the Greeks are no longer their own heroes by the time that we start getting history. By the time you're getting a, a Herodotus, however fanciful you think he is, or certainly a Thucydides, who's definitely a lot more careful, by the time you're getting history, when you read history, instead of believing in reincarnation, it is extremely hard to believe that anybody could be reincarnated because each time is so different from the last. But even if someone could be reincarnated, you'd what you're holding on to is not actually finally the thing that you staked your life on, your strength, your power, which obviously decline with age and they're then completely gone in death. And I think significantly Alamario doesn't have a family. So he is still thinking in terms of himself in a way that is natural before you have a family. I, I don't I don't blame him for it, but I, I 
therefore take everything he says with a grain of salt. He has no family. You're therefore going to look for something that you hold dear after some kind of cataclysm happens, a suicide in the first book of Mishima's quadrology, or the firebombing of Tokyo, or whatever it is that he's narrating. You're going to look for this beauty to somehow come back because you know, because you're smart enough and you're honest enough that none of this survives. You can't actually contra the term conservatism, just hold on to the past. You can't because everything goes away. That's the condition of human life. Everything goes away. So there's something very beautiful about Mishima. And if you're at all interested in these ideas, I think Bronze Age Mindset is an interesting book. I think Mishima represents the ideas with a little bit more honesty and having also being an older man, having sort of spelled these things out more, particularly in this set of four novels. But what's happening is that the honesty reduces to this will go away. It's not just that that's sad, it's also that that provides no solution for life. So if you begin with a discussion, in Bap's case, you say, uh, young men are, are weak and this is destructive to their life and to society. Okay, great. You started with a real problem. Mishima starts with the real problems that have occurred to Japan over the course of the 20th century. If you have a, if your solution is, I hope that there will be some kind of rekindling of what was beautiful, of what was strong, and I hope to be able to recognize in the future, that is no prescription that is helpful to anybody. That in, in its way, it's just a more intellectually interesting version of conservatives continuing to obsess over defense spending and taxation rates while the country is sort of falling apart in a moral sense and people are doing drugs in public, right? It just, just kind of doesn't matter. So what I would propose is that when you're thinking about these things theologically, so politically you could say somebody who follows BAP on Twitter also thinks like immigration is a problem and we, you know, we can't have an uncontrolled southern border. Or somebody who follows BAP on Twitter also thinks that seed oils in my food is a bad thing. That's fine. That's, that's fine to have that guy as a political ally on those issues. But they're basically foes in the sense that they are trying to provide solutions and hope that obviously pagans cannot provide because they have no hope. Because everybody dies because everybody's prone to suffering. I mean, this is what I credit Buddhists with, is that their founder actually saw through the stupidity of the idea of reincarnation. I don't want to be reincarnated only to do all this horrible stuff all over again and die all over again and be separated from my loved ones all over again. I don't want to do that, right? I want to get out of that cycle. Christianity provides a different set of ideas. It's not a slave morality at all, but you can think about it this way. If the problem with vitality and strength is that they will go away someday, and therefore it's really hard to found a state, a family, whatever, on my own sheer vitality or strength in the same way that it would be hard if he were trying to found an actual political movement on BAP's online personality, which involves all kinds of weird stuff, including retaining his you know weird name from years and years ago on a different version of the internet, basically. You, you can't build a political movement off one guy. One guy can lead it, you can't build it. You can't build a state off a single set of one generation strength whereby they've conquered something, right? A good example from Greek history is that the Spartans, the people we know as the Spartans, are really just a conquering upper class. And after they conquer the native population of Sparta, they then have to write a constitution to figure out how they're going to stay there. Because just the sheer idea that they conquered doesn't mean that they'll be able to stay. If we're looking for lasting solutions, which is probably one of the impulses for anybody who calls himself conservative or has, as I did in the past, one of the impulses behind, uh, I think, good politics is that you need something that's going to be lasting. Christianity doesn't operate with the framework from ancient history, but also with 
from Greek mythology of mankind progressively falling from a golden age into a silver age into a bronze age. Christianity works in terms of ages with, in the New Testament, two, and they're overlapping. This is generally a much more helpful way to think about politics, okay? Is that there's an old age that is passing away, and it is defined by John's description of the pride of the eyes and the lust of life, okay? And in that old age and among the nations that are not subservient to Christ, there's just sheer domineering, lording it over, okay? And that's the way that life works. And that's that's power and that's strength. And that's going to be exercised differently at different times. So in Bronze Age Greece, it's going to be exercised by sheer military force of the people who rule you, who are stronger and <laughs> who eat better and therefore who are taller than you. In our time, it's exercised almost entirely through money and debt, right? That's why having a debt jubilee is just not in the cards for our society, right? Because that's, that is the strength of our regime is, is money and particularly the lack of money, debt. So that's, that's the way that this old age is going. Overlapping with that is a new age already begun at Easter, defined by life and life unending. And the one who is most eloquent on this is John in his gospel, where Jesus is even saying things such as, even though he die, yet shall he live. That hope is premised on resurrection. Because of that resurrection, and because the two ages are overlapping, Christianity has always recognized a difference, unlike pagan societies, unlike Muslim societies, unlike Jewish societies such as they have existed but let's take modern Israel, for example. Though pagans, Muslims, Jews, they don't recognize a difference, a difference between religion and politics. We do, because we realize that politics is trying to achieve certain things in God's creation in this age, and it should align with God's intention, but it's not the be-all and end-all of everything, okay? And I, I don't need to be, therefore, completely invested that in everything that is occurring politically because it is passing away. Lots of things are passing away. When they are completely eclipsed by Christ's return, everyone will be held accountable to him. That's why, as we've been talking about in the series on political theology on Thursdays, that's why traditionally Protestant Christians, as well as Roman Catholic Christians in, in various ways, have said, you know, look, governments need to understand, kings need to understand that they are accountable to Christ. They will be held accountable to him. That's because eventually these two ages, one goes away forever, okay? Its fashion is already passing. Satan has already been expelled from heaven, right? I saw him fall like lightning. Christ has already risen. And then there will come a day when we will rise. Because of that vision of life and the realities of life, we don't agree that, you know, the solution to the death of the West is to revive some sort of live action role-playing version of paganism or some real version of paganism, such as you get with Shinto in Japan. The solution to any human society's problems is going to be the acknowledgement of Christ's resurrection as life for the world and because of his ascension, his reigning over all things for the good of his body, the church. Therefore, the nation should be incorporated into the church through holy baptism, that they could acknowledge Christ as king. So I find, for that reason, I find Alamario and, and his hangers-on, I find them very, very limited. Okay, maybe not actually as, in practice, not as evilly intentioned in any way that you know, honestly, just looking at his behavior, I found with William F. Buckley. So I, for one, welcome the fracturing of conservatism. I find myself aligned in many ways with the West Coast Straussians at this point, particularly Michael Anton, in being open to some of these ideas that you're getting out of BAP. But I find them inadequate, finally, to doing something that would actually be lasting, which has actually been done before, which is for a society to be governed by the law of God. 
And that's a society that anybody could be part of, right? So it's not just a society for young men in the prime of life, which is kind of an intriguing thing for uh, people who follow BAP. It's not just a society for <laughs> big thinkers who live solitary lives like Friedrich Nietzsche. It is something that can account for all of God's orders of creation, could account for something that you basically never find discussed among BAP or his followers, which is the existence of the family. I, I, don't, I think most of them probably don't have one. But what it, what it can do, what we can do, is to think in terms of a two ages mindset and understand that the fashion of this world is passing away and we are building for eternity. So we're doing all that we do in our families, in our churches, in our governments, in our wherever at work. We are doing all that we do so that we, with the talents that we've been given, can render back to the master thanks and praise for his gifts. That's our lives, right? That's what we do. And if you're a young man, it's good for you to be strong. If you're an old man, it's good for you to be strong. But that's not all. And it's good to, in a society that needs to defend itself, to have strong men defending it. But that is not everything. And if you read Mishima, who has a longer historical timeline than Bap, you'll actually see that he says, wow, what happens when a man who was once strong now just goes away? If you believe in the resurrection, nothing ever quite entirely goes away. Right? What is whispered now will be shouted from the housetops. So that's how I think about the relationship between religion and politics. That's obviously going to be completely different from somebody who is, with more or less seriousness, a pagan, right? Obviously. Obviously. But that means that we're premising the life that we're living and the way that we're living it as also in you know, whatever set of groups you want to talk about, states, churches, whatever, in the past, not just individuals, but human groups, people who run Christian businesses, families that pray together are staking not just like a certain set of ideas that they're reciting in church, but the way that they're running their family and the fact that they're not actually kind of trying to cheat or charge the absolute highest price for everything in business or whatever it is that you're doing, right? Why are you doing that? Because you know that you're answerable to the king. You're answerable to the king. You're not just answerable to your own strength or your own sense of power or craft, right? You are answerable to the king. I think that's a much more positive vision for the future. Also for whatever is called conservative, what I, what I would just prefer to call the right in America, that's a much more positive vision for the future than to try to say, oh, if we could only get back to talking about the things that we used to talk about in the 1990s, or if we could only get back to behaving the way that I imagine that Greek warriors did in the 1200s BC or whatever it is that you're trying to get back to, you can't go back, right? You're not, you're not going to reincarnate the 90s. A lot of us you know, furtively believe in reincarnation when we just wish that we could go back to a time that we found more comfortable to live in. I believe in resurrection. So I'm looking forward and then I'm premising what I'm doing now until either he comes again or I die and then rest in him. I'm doing what I do now in view of the resurrection. The rest of it doesn't matter. Okay. And from that, you can have all the daring and all the strength that you want. In fact, the Christians proved to be indomitable. They could not, not be domineered by the pagans until such time as you conquer, right? Think about the vision given to Constantine. By this sign, you will conquer. By this sign, you will conquer. Bap often brings up the Emperor Julian, who is the guy that tries to go back to pagan antiquity. It doesn't work. Fortunately, he died quickly, but he tried to go back to pagan antiquity. I, you can see why Bap wants to do that, right? Here's the reason you can't go back. Julian, who comes between Constantine and really kind of a, a bigger builder for Christianity and, and, and with, without a shred of doubt, unlike Constantine, definitely an Orthodox Christian, Justinian. Okay. You can't go back because Christ is raised. He's already victorious. So I don't need to go back to the Bronze Age. I don't need to go back to the 1950s. I don't need to go back to the 1990s. He has risen. I therefore can face whatever 
because he is risen. Okay. So then I begin to shape my family or my church or my government or my business or whatever I'm given to do. I begin to shape that according to the fact that he is risen. Okay. Julian's not risen. Yukio Mishima is not risen. Bap isn't dead yet, but should he die tomorrow? He's not risen, right? But there is one who has conquered death. He's not reincarnated. It's him. It's the life he lived. He's got the scars. Because of that, I'm not conservative. I am a Christian. Okay. I'm not conservative. I'm trying to live biblically. I'm not conservative. I'm not longing for the 90s in America or the 1890s in the LCMS or something dumb. I'm longing to discern what is the good and perfect and true will of God, right? The way the apostle teaches us to do. And I'm pressing ahead for the prize of the upward calling in Christ Jesus. The Bible talks about disciplining your body and it talks about focusing and lots of things that people find helpful about BAP and Jordan Peterson. But it talks about those things in view of and because of the resurrection of Jesus. And that is something that conservatism in America, certainly since the Second World War, being a sort of Catholic-Jewish alliance, really hasn't talked that much about the resurrection or a Christian polity. But it's also something that I think we often forget. That's what our forefathers were devoted to. The notion of a city set on a hill. So here's actual American political tradition, contra, you know, whatever it is that Russell Kirk was trying to cook up. The city set on a hill was what it was because they were seeking a better country. That was literally the case in a country where they could practice their religion in New England. That was spiritually the case and much more importantly the case in that they knew that the fashion of this world was passing away. They were trying to conform their lives now to God's teachings. They were ultimately trying to attain when everything else would be proven loss. They were trying to attain the resurrection of Christ through faith in him. That's a two ages mindset and that's the right one. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider? One that values life no matter the stage and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct eCare can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.